Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. We think we know the history of China's opening to the outside world. Maoist China was closed off until Deng Xiaoping decided to reform the economy and open up to international trade leading to the economic powerhouse we see today. Except Deng's opening was shown by an existing foundation of international trade, as shown by Dr. Jason Kelly's Market Maoists, The Communist Origins of China's Capitalist Descent, published by Harvard University Press earlier this year. Jason M. Kelly is a historian of modern China with interest in Chinese foreign relations during the 20th and 21st centuries, commerce and diplomacy, U.S.-China relations, and East Asian international history. He is currently an assistant professor at the Strategy and Policy Department at the U.S. Naval War College and an associate in research at the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies at Harvard University. The views he expressing today are his own and not those of the U.S. Naval War College. We're doing something new with, with, with today's interview. Um, a co-host. I'd like to introduce my co-host, Sarah Bramal-Ramos. Sarah, would I like to say a few words about yourself? Yeah, and thanks so much for having me, Nicholas. Um, Institutionally, I am a PhD candidate at Harvard University. I work on Qing China. And here is my connection with Jason. This year, I'll also be at the Fairbanks Center as a graduate student associate. So today, the three of us will talk about trade policy in Maoist China and what that means for our understanding of the country's attitude towards both the capitalist and socialist worlds. We'll also discuss what this history may mean for how we understand China's attitude towards trade today. So, Jason, I've got the first question. Um, could you just tell us about the period of time Market Maoist talks about? What's the state of China at this point, and what's the international environment it's facing? Yeah, so, so before I launch into it, thanks to you both for, for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, the, the book covers a, a broad swath of the 20th century. So it starts in 1937 uh, when China is in flux, right? So at this time, the nationalist government controls, so the KMT, the Kuomintang, which we think of as the Chinese government at the time, only controls a fraction of the area on the map that we think of as China today, concentrated sort of in, centered on Nanjing uh, in central China. 
But much, much of the rest of the, the region that we think of as China was controlled at this time by various warlords, local powers, um, with Japan encroaching from the Northeast and other imperialist powers guarding their own interests and enclaves inside of China. Um, also at this time, the Chinese Communist Party itself, the CCP, is a relatively small organization holed up in northwest China in the countryside. Um, so that's where China is when the book starts. We fast forward a little over a decade by 1949, uh, after the end of the war with Japan, the Pacific War, and several years of civil war, uh, the Chinese Communist Party has taken control of the country. And in October of 1949, it announces the official founding of the People's Republic of China, the China that we know today. And really from that point forward, for the next two and a half decades into the mid-1970s, when the book concludes, much of the storyline concerns the CCP's efforts to transform China from a, a backward, their word, not mine, backward, oppressed country into a modern, industrial, respected, and powerful socialist state. And as the book shows, or I try to show in the book, foreign trade was an essential part of that process. Um, I should say, too, that the international environment is obviously changing quite a bit during this period as well, uh, beginning with the start of both the European and the Pacific Wars in the late 1930s, and then on through the ideological tensions of the early post-war and Cold War years, and then by the 1960s, the sharp tensions between China and the Soviet Union after the Sino-Soviet split broke open in 1960. And so this, this is really a period of tremendous change in China and in the world. And I think many of the people who lived through it saw it as a period uh, of both great opportunity for China, but also a period of, of many challenges and significant threats. Yeah, thank you for setting that up. Um, as sort of, you know, as we're thinking about the narrative that we know about today about China, uh, going back to what Nicholas laid out in his opening, um, the common narrative about China's economic development, of course, places Deng Xiaoping right at the center. Um, why do you think this narrative has proven so difficult to dislodge? And based on your research and the work that you do in the book, what would you say, you know, is so wrong about this narrative? What does it miss? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't know that I would say that it's necessarily wrong to put Deng at or maybe near the center of the story, but his role is certainly just one part of a very complicated transformation in China during the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, Deng did play an important role in China's reopening, um, but he had tons and tons of Mao era precedents and experiences to draw from as he thought about the challenges and opportunities that would come with opening China up more to the outside world in the 1970s and 80s. Um, he, he also had many colleagues who themselves had years of firsthand experience with foreign trade with capitalists and who understood how trade could support China's uh, modernization efforts. Um, to get to the, the first part of your question, though, where you, you asked about how why it's been so hard to dislodge Deng from the center of this, this narrative of reopening, I think... Partly, I think that's because that's where the Chinese Communist Party itself seems to want him, right? Official party histories present Deng and his era as a, as a fresh start in a lot of ways, right? It's the beginning of this new age that breaks from some of the tragedies of the Maoist period, um, most recently at the time, the Cultural Revolution, but also the Great Leap Forward. And so in a sense, by framing the, the Deng era around Deng, um, with Deng at the center allows the party to, to kind of create this clean break from the Mao period and, 
It allows the party to sort of be reborn in a way that re- reinforces party legitimacy at home. So maybe let's talk about Maoist China's attitude to trade in general, kind of over this period. Um, and one thing you note in your book is that there are kind of different approaches when it comes to uh, capitalist economies and socialist economies. Yeah, and that that attitude it changes over time, right? Like like everything else. And so in the early years of the PRC the party really had a kind of tiered approach to trading with capitalists and socialists in which capitalist trade was framed as a kind of last resort. And so this this approach really emerged in early 1949, so before the founding of the PRC itself, when the party established what it called its, its basic principle of foreign trade, which said basically that China would satisfy its needs, its trade needs as much as possible by trading with the Soviet Union and by trading with other uh, new democracies, as they called it, in Eastern Europe, so other socialist states in Europe. Um, with After that tier was, that trade occurred on the top tier, China would then trade with foreign capitalists only when uh, China had goods to sell that socialist trade partners didn't want, or China wanted to buy goods from abroad that socialist partners didn't have. Um, so this this kind of tiered way of thinking about trade with socialists versus capitalists remained pretty consistent until really the early 1960s when China was confronted by two two major crises, right? The first one was um, the fallout of the Sino-Soviet split. So relations between Moscow and Beijing had been souring for for the late 1950s for quite a while. And then in July of 1960, uh, Moscow withdrew abruptly all Soviet and technical, Soviet technical and economic advisors from China. And so this was, a, this was a big shock for the trade officials in China who now saw pretty clearly that economic relations with fellow socialist states was nowhere near uh, as stable or as reliable as, as they thought in the early 1950s. The second crisis, which occurred almost at the same time, was the collapse of the Great Leap Forward, right? And the widespread famine that followed as a result. And this, this famine pushed Chinese trade officials to launch a massive program to import grains from capitalist countries uh, all around the world, but especially, especially uh, Australia and Canada, to feed the starving population. And the, the combined effect of these two crises was to, to pull the PRC away from the mindset that socialist trade was inherently safer and more reliable than capitalist trade. And this realization kind of helped to open a path for expanded trade with capitalists in, in the years that followed. So thinking about, as you've sort of laid out the way that um, PRC is, you know, trading with socialist <laughs> trading partners and capitalist socialist, uh, capitalist trading partners, the issue of ideology comes up and we cool. see throughout the book uh, ideology coming in and coming out and informing and sometimes not um, the direction of China's trade policy. So I wonder if you could talk about this directly. How important was ideology in what in what the PRC is doing? Yeah, well, that's a great question too. So I mean, ideology was was critically important. It played a major role in shaping China's trade policy, particularly after 1949. But but it played a role not necessarily in, in a rigid, inflexible way. And so part of what I'm trying to show in the book is is how Chinese communist ideology changed over time to suit different historical contexts. And I'm using Chinese commercial relations to show how these ideological shifts occurred. Um, So for example, one of the core frameworks used by the party to think about China's foreign trade is this concept of zili gongsheng, which I translate in the book as as revival through one's own efforts. But it's usually translated just as as self-reliance. 
Now, this is a Mao era concept that dates back to well before the founding of the PRC, but Xi Jinping and other party officials still use the expression today in the context of contemporary China's foreign trade. So one of the reasons that I find I find this this question so interesting is is this concept of Zili Gangshang has been able to survive despite all the dramatic changes in China over the years because it wasn't a rigid insistence on blind self-reliance, right? It was more of a, of a kind of ideologically informed, um, almost like a disposition that encouraged Chinese leaders to, to think about the implications of foreign trade, especially the vulnerabilities and dependencies that might come along with extensive trade. Uh, and so this is a concept with Maoist ideological roots that's flexible enough to permit huge changes in China's trade policy, but still remain relevant. And so by tracing changes in concepts like this over time, we can see how ideology has always been an important uh, factor in determining the direction of China's trade policy, but, but not in a rigid way, necessarily. Absolutely. And you were describing there that, you know, this concept is remaining even as China's going through all kinds of dramatic changes. And you've already hinted on a few, the Sino-Soviet split, the Great Leap Forward. Uh, But are there any other or maybe these uh, events, either international or domestic, that you see as being really important in shaping China's trade policy between 1949 and the 1970s. Yeah, well, definitely, definitely the ones that that we've talked about already um, were were critically important. There's so many; it's hard to it's hard to narrow it down. But I do think that you know one of the things that, that surprised me as I was working on the book was how much war has shaped China's trade policy over the years. Right. So that the the Chinese Communist Party's first front companies in Hong Kong were possible because of the war with Japan in the late 1930s. Uh, China's involvement in the Korean War and late 1950 led the United States to push for an embargo against China that had a profound impact on Chinese trade during the Mao era and, and afterward, too. The Cold War, um, which, you know, strictly speaking, is, is not a military conflict, not a single discrete war, but it had a massive impact on how Chinese trade officials understood the threats uh, and the opportunities associated with foreign trade uh, and its relationship to China's economic development. So, you know, there were so many events that had significant impacts on trade policy uh, during this period. But I do, I would go so far as to say that wars as kind of a category of events did more to shape China's trade policy between 1949 and the 1970s than almost any other type of event. So you, you mentioned Hong Kong in your answer, and I wanted to kind of explore that a bit more. Um, how important was Hong Kong when it comes to, or, or how important was Hong Kong when it came to Maoist China's international trade policy? And then what about kind of the other major port cities like like Shanghai? Yeah, so Hong Kong was was hugely important uh, in China's international trade during the Mao years, uh, much much more so than Shanghai. In fact, um, the fir- the first chapter of the book opens in Hong Kong precisely because the colony was so important to the story of Chinese communist foreign trade. So CCP leaders turned to Hong Kong in 1937 uh, as a really crucial site for fundraising and for buying goods uh, for its base areas at the start of the war with Japan. Uh, that same chapter later on tells the story of how the party established front companies in Hong Kong and then set up a shipping network that linked the colony to Chinese communist-controlled territory in North China, uh, also for trade purposes. And that that central importance of Hong Kong remained in uh, the storyline 
after 1949 and into the PRC period as well. But um, it's important to note, too, that the U.S.-led embargo after China entered the Korean War in late 1950 made trade through Hong Kong much more difficult uh, and, as a result, much more expensive, too. And so, um, you know, one of the interesting aspects of the research for the book is uh, how much work went into enforcing the embargo in Hong Kong and what great resources it took to make sure that the embargo um, limited China's ability to use Hong Kong as a trade conduit uh, after 1950. Um, but they never were fully successful, not entirely. In fact, China Resources uh, is a today, for folks who don't know, is a massive Chinese state-owned conglomerate. Um, but it got its start as an underground front company for the Chinese Communist Party in, in 1938, I believe. And it's managed to survive in Hong Kong all the way up to the present. Oh, yeah. China Resources, I think, I think, and I may have to confirm this later, I think they now sell uh, Tesco stuff at Hong Kong. <laughs> Oh, there you go. <laughs> Still relevant. Um, but but actually but actually speaking speaking of um just continuing on the Hong Kong point, it was funny, like how, how what what was the British attitude towards this? And and I mean British not just in terms of the government, in terms of like British companies. Um there was the scene of I think in the book where I think it's the guy who runs uh, Jardines is like popping up as like part of a trade delegation to China and screws things up. Um, but kind of, but kind of, what is the? I mean, I mean, what what's the British attitude, both again from the government and from its companies towards uh, Hong Kong and its place in China's trading network? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, ambivalent, I guess, would be the best way to put it. I mean, there there are certainly um, leading industries that had long-standing commercial stakes in China and wanted to see those those interests protected, particularly during the war with Japan, and then obviously afterwards too, and after 1949. Um, but the the foreign office had other concerns, right? And you can see that early on in the book. Uh, I think you're referring to um, the first and second chapters. There's discussion about how you know London's sort of stuck, right? They're they're happy with the commercial relationship that Britain has with China, uh, and they're they're kind of aware that war with Japan, Japan <clears throat> which has already begun between. China and Japan is is going to cause major disruptions in East Asia, and they're trying to figure out how to maintain neutrality in Hong Kong uh, when it's becoming increasingly obvious that Chinese Communist Party and other Chinese activists are using Hong Kong to raise funds and to supply the militaries on the mainland, uh, which is awkward because Japan, Japanese officials are very aware of this. So there's this tension that, that London is trying to navigate early in the war that I think kind of captures how London felt ambivalent from the very get-go in this story and all the way up through through the PRC period when there are still firms interested in regaining their lost footholds in China after the communists come to power. Uh, but for various reasons, the Foreign Office is concerned about uh, tensions with Washington that could result uh, given the embargo. Um, and so that's a long-running problem throughout the book. Very neat. Uh, you know, on the topic of Hong Kong, I think I'm. I will speak for Nicholas here. I loved the Hong Kong chapter, uh, but the other other part of the book that I thought was fascinating was how much time and how you know how great of an insight we get into the cadres who are staffing the Ministry of Trade, uh, because as you point out in the book, many top leaders, including Mao, didn't really know that much about about foreign trade, about market economics. So we sort of you take us through. Um, with these cadres in looking at how, you know, what they were doing, what was going on. So what can you tell us about the Ministry of Trade, later the Ministry of Foreign Trade? How was it organized in the PRC? And, you know, what kinds of people were recruited to staff it? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, I, I found that section interesting to write too, just really fascinating to see what kinds of people came in, especially in the early 1950s, right? The early years when they're trying to get these, the parties trying to get these institutions off the ground. Um, both, both ministries, the Ministry of Trade and then the Ministry of Foreign Trade, uh, were modeled largely after the Soviet Union. Um, it's, a, it's a little confusing in the early years. So the Ministry of Trade starts out in 1949 with the founding of the new state. Uh, within that, there's a foreign trade division, which oversaw China's international trade until 1952. So just on the eve of the first five-year plan, when the state decides that really China needs a ministry of foreign trade, a ministry level foreign trade outfit to handle the foreign trade agenda. And so they established the Ministry of Foreign Trade in 1952, right? So a little bit of inside institutional baseball there, but that's, that <laughs> explains the names. Um, but the way that they were organized is they, they kind of organized along ge- both geographical and functional lines, right? So there would be, for example, there's an office of European and American trade that's responsible for planning all the trade with capitalist nations in, in Europe and in the Americas. Um, there's a plans office, for example, that monitor the price of, of global commodities all over the world. And because these offices are responsible for analyzing all kinds of developments in markets, um, they faced a real acute recruiting challenge early on, right? Because they're looking for politically reliable officials, obviously, but they also need people with technical skills, right? They need people with language, foreign language skills and previous experience in trade. And that's, those were not strong points of the Chinese Communist Party in 1949, 1950, <laughs> right? It's a largely rural agrarian revolution. So they just didn't have the cadres with these skills in spades, right? And so what they did was they hired holdovers from the, the KMT, the Kuomintang nationalist regime, who had decided to remain in China, right? Because they had the skills that the party needed. Uh, the ministry also recruited graduates of, of elite universities, right? Beja, Beida, uh, Tsinghua, uh, who had technical skills that could be valuable. They even, I found this interesting too, they even reached out to Chinese living abroad who might be willing to return to China to help rebuild the nation's trade program. And in the book, I described some of these individuals and kind of how many of them had graduate degrees in economics and trade-related fields who did come back to, to contribute to the, to the rebuilding of Chinese trade in the 1950s. Um, and all of this kind of made the, the Ministry of Trade or then the Ministry of Foreign Trade a surprisingly cosmopolitan and, and technocratic institution, relatively speaking, at the time. Uh, of course, this didn't last, you know, this was not the case all the way through. There are various political campaigns that, that targeted many of these individuals later in the 50s and 60s. Could you say a little bit more about that? What sort of happens, you know, we're, we're talking about recruitment, um, but what happens later on? Could you give us a little bit of a sense of that? Yeah, later on, uh, there's, there's, there are these waves of political campaigns that, that work their way through China's institutional environment in the 1950s and 60s, where in, in the trade world, the central tension, which, which comes to be called the, the kind of red and expert trade-off by the late 1950s is how do you find that balance between technical proficiency for officials who are required to negotiate these complex international transactions with foreign capitalists on the one hand with their their redness as it was called right their their political devotion and uh, their commitment to the revolution itself and there's never really a stable resolution to that tension, which 
wreaks havoc on on many of these people uh, who joined the trade industry, the, the trade institutions in the early 1950s, uh, because they're targeted because they're politically suspect, right? They they seem to, as the political winds shift, they're seen as having erred on the wrong side of the red and expert balance, so to speak. So we, you mentioned the kind of the political winds kind of shifting, um, depending on how, uh, you know, I guess, I guess uh, Mao's policies and attitudes towards politics changed. Um, I guess how important is Mao to this story? And also, um, what was his legacy when it comes to trade, even after his death? Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a good question, too. So Mao himself was never, my understanding from, from looking at the available documents uh, and reading a lot of official work on him in China, is that he was never particularly interested in the finer points of international trade and commerce. He's more of a big ideas kind of guy. <laughs> And so he, he seemed to grab, he understood that foreign trade was an essential component of China's industrialization, right? And, and modernization goals in general, but he, he didn't really have the temperament or the interests necessary for delving into the finer points of, of international commerce. And so because he was, I mean, he was a massive, he was the center of the, the political world, at least institutionally for much of this period. And so he mattered in that sense. But what was interesting to me in working on the book was that Zhou Enlai, uh, in contrast to Mao, was keenly interested in international trade and understood its importance very well to China's national goals. Um, so this was something that, you know, I, I knew Zhou's critically important for Chinese diplomacy in general, but I didn't quite realize how deeply involved he was in foreign trade from the 1930s all the way up until his death in early 1976. Um, and when I say involved, I, I don't mean that he was simply following kind of broad brush issues in, in policy, but he had an astonishing grasp of the details and clearly followed small developments in foreign trade very, very closely. Uh, and so I would say that Joe was actually much more of a central figure in the evolution of China's foreign trade during this period than, than I think Mao was in many ways. You mentioned how, you know, how aware and how clued in Zhou Enlai was. And that's very much, you know, as you said, in contrast to Mao himself. Um, and, he, you know, Mao also doesn't really hit any of the, the key markers that came up we were, when we were discussing um, cadres in the Ministry of Foreign Trade, you know, previous experience in trade, language skills, technical proficiency, he lacks all of these. Yeah. Uh, but how would you describe Mao's own approach to foreign trade? And, you know, did it change at all over the course of his life or not so much? You know, I don't, I don't think it did change all of that much. I mean, he saw, he saw it as a necessary component uh, of China's modernization agenda. But he, he didn't, I mean, it mattered at certain points, I think I would say he had the most influence when he played a central role in guiding some of the campaigns that we talked about earlier. So during the Great Leap Forward and during the late 1950s, when this issue of, of redness and expertise comes to a head, I mean, he's a central figure in um, raising, shifting the political winds, I guess, as, as we mentioned earlier, uh, which kind of removed the top cover for many of these trade officials and forced them to, um, well, it brought tragic personal consequences for many of these people, but also forced them to reevaluate the relationship between what they were doing uh, on a daily basis with trade and how that related to what it meant to be um, a, a, a genuine supporter and revolutionary of the cause. 
so uh, I have one more question, and it's kind of looking at what we what this history tells us about the present day. Um, you know, one thing that struck me on reading the book, especially the early chapters, um, was uh, the United States maybe trying to push a let's say, a firmer economic and trade policy towards China and the rest of the Western world, especially Europe, not being uh, quite on board. Um, one looking at headlines today might notice a parallel. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I guess I guess kind of kind of what does what does what does this story about trade under Maoist China? What is it? I think a tells about maybe China's thoughts about trade today and also how the international world um, may treat trade with China. Yeah, and I I think you hit the nail on the head with your comments about those those parallels um, and the potential tensions between the United States and, and other countries when they're thinking about whether China represents an opportunity or a threat. Right? I think many countries today, like you said, are, are ambivalent about trade with China, uh, just as many nations were during the Mao years. Right. Um, for some folks, it's a promising opportunity, and for for others, uh, it's it's something to be guarded against. And I think that that ambivalence and the and the tensions that it creates, uh, it reminds me uh, very much of the Mao years, um, and that was on my mind as I was working on the book as well. And another point too that is really I think important to remember, especially in the context of of discussions about maybe a more a firmer approach to trade with China um, is that there are parallels to the early Cold War and the early 1950s and the U.S.-led embargo against China. That, that created significant divisions between the United States and its allies in Europe and in Japan and elsewhere in the world. And I think similar tensions have or could surface uh, between the United States and other countries in recent years, too. Um, about those, whether China, how and whether China represents an opportunity uh, or a challenge commercially. Uh, it, it's important also to note, though, the context is very different today as well, right? So China is much more deeply engaged in global trade today, and, and the economy, global economy is much more sophisticated and tightly integrated than it was during the Mao years. But I do think at the end of the day, those historical parallels are important to keep in mind um, if, if for no other reason than they provide valuable context that might lead to more informed and, and nuanced decisions in the days ahead. Well, let's hope that's the case. Um, thank you for listening to our interview with Jason Kelly, author of Market Malice, The Communist Origins of China's Capitalist Descent. Uh, Jason, I actually have one more question for you. Uh, what's next and where can people find your work? So next up, I'm just now starting a new book project. It, it almost is, it feels a little bit like a sequel to the first one. So the first book was about how we've, we've misunderstood or, or not fully understood China's uh, deep and widespread engagement with global capitalism during the Mao years. And so with that new context, I'm looking at China's opening up. And, and what I want to do is look at the opening up period from the 1970s to the 1980s and to think about it. Uh, in light of what I've found already, and also to think about it as, a, as an international historical event in its own right. You know, it's really common to, for scholars to, to think and, and people in general to think about opening reform uh, as two parts of one process. And, and really, when we talk about it in those terms, opening is almost like the, the handmaid to reform, right? We're trying to figure out how reform happened. And what I want to do is carve out opening and look at that as an, as an independent historical event in itself and to try to understand that better. 
So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Sarah, anything you'd like to share or plug while you're on the show as well? Sure. Uh, you can usually find me on New Books in East Asian Studies. And that's another podcast on the New Books Network. Um, and if you desperately have any uh, things related to Ching China or Manchu language in particular, I am at sbramalramos at g.harvard.edu. So we hope you can listen to the Interview Books podcast now, found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more info who's coming up on the show. Um, but before then, thank you so much, Jason, for joining us today. Thanks to both of you. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>